Hi, and welcome to Thinking With, a long-form, unpolished conversation. I'm Kyle, an architect and artist. And I'm Kat, an artist and filmmaker. In this season, we're thinking with Chris Krause. Join us in our nine-part discussion on I Love Dick, a book by Chris Krause, and a TV show by Joey Soloway and their ensemble team, starring Catherine Hahn and Kevin Bacon. We highly recommend that you watch along with us. Check out each TV episode and then come back to the corresponding podcast to hear our film analysis and personal discussions that use parallels from our own lives to help us understand this masterpiece by Chris Krause. Check out the book if you haven't read it yet. It features a lot in our upcoming episodes. Here's a quick recap of episode five, a short history of weird girls. We get a series of vignettes exploring the histories of our characters and their desires. We see the complicated origins of Chris's relationship with Silver and their intertwining as an inseparable artistic entity. Next, we see how Dick's presence as landowner influenced Devon, both from a socioeconomic perspective and as a role model for their gender aspirations. Paula's desires are shown to be private and in contrast to the liberal feminist activism of her upbringing. And finally, we see Toby's history of challenging the established order plowing through barriers and putting Dick on notice that she's coming for him too. What'd you think of this? Oh, I, th- I thought it was such a great palate cleanser from, <laughs> from the last couple of episodes. Yeah. Like, honestly, I am... Um... I'm so grateful to not be feeling like shit right now. I know. <laughs> me too. And it only took like the first maybe three minutes for me to go, phew, all right, I'm not going to get bit in the ass by this episode. Because um, it was obviously a return to Joey Soloway's directing. Mm. Mm. So there was a, you know, a return to the multiple points of view. There was mm. a return to kind of like a more obvious... Um, like filming technique in, term of, in terms of using the female gaze, which we've talked about before. So like, just like a quick, to quickly recap on that, like the male gaze is the objectification of, of the other, usually women and women's bodies, etc., and experiences. And the female gaze is often thought of as the inverse of that, which is the objectification of men. But what Joey Soloway says is that this is not true, that the female gaze is the subject that is usually the object recognizing that it's being objectified and then looking right back at those that objectify it and that's exactly what happens the whole way through this episode boy does it yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah i just uh yeah i but not not only that um what i what i found really really interesting was what soloway takes from the book and then expand and how she expands on the book in this. So she takes the diaristic memoir letter writing sort of format that Chris Krauss uses in the book, I Love Dick. And then she expands that and adds a diversity of perspectives and a diversity of um, like intersections of class and, and race and uh, gender and sexuality. And it just it's just an incredible symphony, isn't it? It really is. It's, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, to me, it's like a masterwork. Like, I am so mm-hmm. happy watching this episode on 
my full spectrum of levels to be happy on. It's like, yeah. Um, what does it make you think of in relation to like, it, it, it feels to me like the opening of act two. It feels mm-hmm, like a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a repetition of, of the format of the first episode, which was the beginning of what I would call now act one. But mm-hmm. how, what do you think about it coming off the back of like some hardcore Andrea Arnold directing yeah. where you are just inside the emotional life in a very different way? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I feel like I've got a ton to kind of say about these things, but it's also like very unprocessed as well. And mm, sure. I don't, I don't know how well I've like merged my like emotional experience watching this with a more uh, intellectual breaking down of what's going on here. Um, but I look forward to trying that. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say that's totally valid because yeah. um, like coming off the back of sort of the messages that you sent after our, you know, our last crack at this with episode four, I've, I've really been feeling that like being uh, allowed to not know when mm. something, when, when something is a difficult to emotionally process mm. and therefore difficult to intellectualize and even kind of talk about, I think is like a really, I think it's really useful to be transparent about that. Yeah. Um, so I was really grateful to get your message just pretty much stating that. Cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. Which I think, all right, this, this might lead to a little rant, but I think that is like, that is in what we're watching as well. That, um, mm-hmm. so you, you mentioned like the diversity of perspectives. Um, yeah, I, I, the first thing I kind of, first thing that kind of stood out to me in this episode is like multitudinousness, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a word, but just um, the polar opposite of um, single static self is this episode to me. So it's diversity of perspectives across different people and diversity of perspectives within the single person. And mm-hmm. um, I think... To, to, to try to link this a little bit back to what's happening in the in this series overall, how I really read this episode was, um, as we said, there was a lot of pain and like confusion in the previous episodes. And um, I feel like what what we're doing now is we're coming back to like basic building blocks of truth and mm-hmm. and we're going from a place where um, the explorations have kind of led to almost like um, everything is in question. Like Chris kind of like Chris and Silver sitting on that couch at the end of the last, last episode. It's like, wow, like feels like everything has kind of crumbled. You, mm-hmm. As you said, I think you said like, this is like a, watching a marriage dissolve and it's like, to me, it feels like there, you know, a, a a little kind of stimulus in Dick has permeated everything in Chris's life, and that has had this really like damaging consequence. But it's also 
kind of forced this reconsideration and starting over in a way to me where mm-hmm. you're you're going back to okay i'm confused as fuck but i do know this one little tiny thing and from that one little tiny thing i know i can start to rebuild this sense of a cohesive self where all these different um parts of me are more in tune and more in unison they they have a stronger um cohesion to them i i don't know this is I'm with you. Can I yeah. just I chuck in? Please chuck in. We, yeah. we were talking last week about um, the the filmmaker whose snippet was in the episode. Um, her, her, her name has just escaped me right now. But um, there was this quote from her where she said, you know, we might not feel like we know much about politics. We might feel like we, we aren't able to speak about who should be the next governor. But what we do know about is how we make our coffee in the morning. Yes that actually if we can come back to like the per- the personal the everyday of what we feel solid and what we know about then we can start to build upon what we know so what you're saying makes sense to me awesome yes yeah. <laughs> yes and i i feel that personally too that that um like i can lose my voice entirely from this sort of um you know, feelings of, of shame or feelings of like parts of myself, like battling each other or Mm -hmm. like that can just cause the whole thing to kind of shut down. And, um, having, having a, having a foundation to kind of go back to and be like, okay, no, this got built on this because of this. And this, this is here because of this, I find really like, re-centering and re-like um instilling of confidence and mm-hmm. um so i you know the, the first thing like just just looking at chris katherine uh, hahn and how she's portraying chris and the demeanor and like what she's what her face is looking like in this it was so striking oh my god just so <laughs> powerful yeah um, um i i I spent I've spent quite a bit of time considering the different layers of what that that glance, what that look, what that gaze is, because there's multiple things happening there. We've got to remember that all of these looks to camera from all of these actors are being framed as direct letters to Dick. Like that, that's sort mm-hmm. of the top layer in the narrative of the of the of the show. Yep. So this this look that she's giving is first like first up it's to Dick, but second up it's to herself. Yes. Third, it's to us, the yes. viewer. Yes. Yes. Um, and then the subtext of it is that sometimes these looks do not match with what she's saying. Okay. So so sometimes the looks the looks don't like they for me they don't register with how I've read the text that I recognized from the book. Right. Interesting. So it creates this dissonance for me between myself and the text, the dialogue and the and the character, and then what's happening in the background. Because what's missing from from so so we if we break the episode up into Chris, Devin, Paula, Toby, those are our those are our four vignettes. So if you if you watch um, the the following three, Devin, Paula, and Toby. They all have these moments of interiority 
and like intimate like intimate moments of like close-ups of skin and whether that mm. is repulsion mm-hmm. or desire um mm-hmm. but we don't really have those moments in, in sort of chris's section so I've been trying to sort of uncover these this direct look to camera, um, it, because part of it is, part of it is is memoir. It's it's confession. It's truth telling, but part of it also, if you look at it in this kind of female gaze lens, I've been wondering if Chris is actually watching herself objectify herself mm. in these past moments within this vignette Mm. whereas the other characters aren't going through that journey which makes me sort of feel like the first segment with the character of chris is sort of it's trying to hold a bit more Uh it's trying Uh to do a bit more i I felt like i had to do a lot of a lot of work to unpick why i felt these weird dissonances Mm. and i I suspect maybe it's because the character feels these dissonances and wants us to as well Mm. as you say catherine hahn's performance was just incredible I mean, it made me think too. Like, um, I, like I said, it's it's so such a brilliant episode, and um, I I started thinking about Fleabag and Phoebe Waller Bridge, and like, oh, of course, I didn't you know, make that like, connection, but yes, the now confessional that you say it. breaking the you know fourth wall, and like, just that like really deep kind of truth that is like cutting through some shit. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I the, the different, I, I'm, I've been so curious to hear your thoughts on gaze because like this episode is just gaze-erific, you know? Like... <laughs> I really like that. We need a t-shirt. Gaze-erific. Yeah, yeah, it is because um, the, the, there is this, uh, the requirement to watch the dismantling of internalized um, misogyny as well, mm-hmm. which is yes. what I sort of maybe that's something of what I'm picking up in the dissonance of of Catherine Hahn's performance. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. She's certainly she's uh, they've done this so brilliantly where they've captured her reexamining herself, mm-hmm, like when mm-hmm. she goes into the bedroom and her younger self is there with Silver and she's she's gone from looking straight at us to back in this bedroom looking at herself and like examining what's happening like mm-hmm. but without the without the rose tinted glasses of her re-examining when we've seen her re-examine in previous episodes yes yes where she's romanticizing yes. To- exactly and exactly. this is like this is like a <laughs> i liken it to like a menstrual cycle in some ways where like the the first sort of half of the of this whole episode now season one to four when she is re-examining the past and sort of it's a it's like this estrogen filled kind of like fantasy rose tinted glasses and then i just felt like this re-examining was like the second half of this menstrual cycle where the estrogen drops out of your body mm. and you just there's no way that you can romanticize anything because one of the one of the kind of glorious things about a menstrual cycle is that you have this moment where you don't have the hormone support in the same way, but it provides a clarity of truth of circumstance. And that's just what this felt like. <laughs> okay, we got a tangent on this real quick, because mm. I, I wondered that, and we may have talked about this in the past, because like, 
So I've been thinking about um, psychedelics yep. throughout this. And I haven't really mentioned it in our conversation so far. But No, you haven't. But like for me, that was a critical tool to like really... Okay, the, the idea congealed that my perspective is super convincing, but there's a huge gap between my perspective and what is outside of me and how much of myself is a tool for perceiving and that that tool has a bunch of different lenses and like it's it's influenced by tons of things and i don't think without those experiences with psychedelics it's hard for me to imagine having the same perspective now and i've often wondered that with women and their hormone cycles, like having such visible contrast, if that does a similar thing where you, yeah, Yeah, I'm I'm nodding without saying anything. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, I'm like in full agreement with you. This is, this is like a, I'm starting to see, um, hormone and hormonal support as, um, as a lens, as, that, and that definitely helps me move through my life, having an understanding that my perspective is being filtered through a chemical process and that changes daily yes. and I don't have any control over it, but I can have control over um, how close I am to that lens mm. or being able to move back from it to be able to see that it is a lens I'm looking through. So I think that you're, um, I think that you're kind of... Um, your analogy of seeing that through psychedelics makes a lot of sense to me. And um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because as you know, I've been like trying to find my way through creativity and work and thinking through a cycle that like a menstrual cycle that is sometimes really intense and, um, and makes it very difficult for me to work and to think. Um, So, trying to find ways through that part of my cycle to find the positives, which is this clarity. It is, doesn't matter how shit it feels, there is a clarity to it that actually, I think um, I've been getting better at harnessing. Um, and and it is really lovely having these kind of big productive outwards looking times between sort of in the first yeah. sort of two weeks of my cycle. Yeah. But, um, that that actually that's not that's not the only power that's not yeah. the only thing to harness which has been kind of fabulous to this is out. amazing to hear because i mean it was very not very long ago that i i feel like you've sorted out a shitload in a very <laughs> short amount of time like i you know what i take my hat off to having um spent quite a lot of time as we've we've spoken about her before Maisie hills yeah. um hills work with her book period power and yeah. um uh, she's got a podcast and just going through the process of that, having something to, to do that helps with it, which is, uh, like, like cycle tracking and gathering mm-hmm. data and mm-hmm. actually getting to see, I, I, I think that she does a certain amount of coaching that allows you to reframe how you're thinking about something, mm-hmm. having a bit more information, yeah. um, has been, it's been so helpful and you're right. It has shifted for me in a very short space of time. <laughs> I mean, I think this also ties in in a way to like, we talked last time about like, um, how painful that episode and that kind of string of episodes were. And I I was sort of feeling the, um, 
necessity of that as a um as a setting of the stakes as a, a like um mm-hmm. you know like and i feel like that's paid off so yeah. hardcore in this episode <laughs> yeah i feel like that which is i guess to go back to that original like question that i had a, like a wee while back of like how do you feel about the positioning of um andrea arnold mm. in this big in this big low point for the characters but a big mm. low point for like a big heaviness mm. to the energy to then mm. bump back up again into like the soloway witticism mm. Um, mm. I like, like I really felt, I felt, I felt this like, um, uh, like you say, this payoff. Like there was a, there's a massive payoff to going through that pain to get to this episode. Yes. Um, and I just wonder about the directorial choice, like the mm. choice of director, but uh, like, like fitting Andrea Arnold's style. Yeah. Smack up against Joey Soloway's was just such a clever choice. Um, whereas while I was going through it, I was like, Whoa, G- why? Give me Joey, more yeah. Joey. <laughs> yeah. I, I can engage with Joey. <laughs> I find Andrea Arnold's mm-hmm. work like, um, like inexplicable in, in comparison. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. No, it's pretty grim. And I think this, uh, okay, it's amazing how interwoven Donna Haraway is into everything, but this this reminds me of something when I first started reading Staying with the Trouble. She's got a line in there um, about where basically she she spells out how grim things are right now. Mm-hmm. And she sets the table in a way that I find so engaging and alluring. She's she's saying, I'm going to look, I'm going to tell you, this is all god awful and the trajectory we're on is indescribably horrific starting there let's start there and (laughs) And what a place to start yeah but i like i feel like it speaks to me i don't know if if this is relevant for other people but the way my the way i process stuff like it's so helpful to start there for me Mm -hmm. and i can i feel like you know, going back to the building blocks, I I feel like the foundation is solid from there, you know, and that... Yeah, well, there's no bullshit there, right? There's no bullshit, exactly. And exactly. you're not being asked to believe anything other than exactly. the state of things. Exactly, mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, she builds on from there um, this idea of rather than trying to fix that and rather than trying to... or to escape it to escape it either through fixing it or some other mechanism, which would be to hide from it. How do we remain able to have a response? How do we stay with this? And she's just staying with this trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's really interesting that you mention or you bring up Haraway because um, in Chris's section of this episode, um, you know how in the last episode I was bemoaning the fact that I was, I, I couldn't find the theory couldn't find the theory in the episode and we, we, we came to this conclusion that actually the theory exists in the in the filmic mode itself in those modalities but like there's a Donna Haraway um, reference in um, in the Chris vignette and it's directly from the book it's Haraway and others um, so when she talks about uh, so her and her friend decide that they want to have sex with this uh, with mm-hmm. this rock star mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
and they say um she says that they want to have sex with him like in this kind of cyborgian split between mm-hmm. mind and body that's mm-hmm. a haraway reference yeah totally. so that's a, a cyborg manifesto from 1985 yeah um and there there you know there are other thinkers um that have that have worked with this idea but um essentially a cyborg manifesto talks about it's like a different way of conceptualizing the kind of culture nature divide um so um well such as like the mind and the body or idealism and materialism um and so harrow introduces the breakdown or the the possibility of the breakdown of the boundaries between animal and human and machine Mm. as a way to kind of start destabilizing this idea Mm. of the mind and the body Mm -hmm. so when when chris is talking about the cyborgian split this is yeah this is a this is a haraway idea yeah i'm so glad you explained that because like it comes up often and i haven't read the cyborg manifesto yet but it seems to be like super influential for a lot of people's thinking and i've tried to like kind of figure out what the fuck that could like cyborgs could have to do with any of this shit and um it's it's moving it's moving things away from the binary it's a it's it's basically finding another framework to talk about um it's another way of decentering the human like I, I from yeah, what I yeah. from what I understand yeah. and I don't have a an in-depth understanding of it so I'm just flitting on the surface here but it's a yeah. um Donna Haraway was frustrated with feminism's um focus on identity politics and she wanted to find another language or another way of mm. engaging with um with feminism and, and feminism's ideas and moving them forward mm. so this idea of the cyborg was a really important vector to have these conversations with um and you can see some of the work that she's done well a lot of the work that she's done in, in the um cyborg manifesto comes out and staying with the trouble and this idea of um she's also got writing about companion species yeah so um the the, the decentering of the human is a really important kind of tool for what's the name of the documentary that she's in the uh, the, for earthly survival yes storytelling for earthly, yes yeah. that's mm-hmm. it that's the one um <laughs> yeah haraway is everything right <laughs> oh my god which is awesome i'm so glad <laughs> yeah me too me too um i think i think just to go back to sorry there's a, it seems to be like a little bit of um DIY work going on either next door to me or downstairs, which is so there might be some weird noises. Apologies. That's for okay. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I wanted to go back to Chris's monologue, um, where she's sort of talking about <clears throat> going back to this directing this letter to Dick, another letter to Dick that you know the format then follows on for the for the other women <clears throat> excuse me the other people in the in the vignettes she says um okay, I'm, I'm i want to try and frame this around desire because mm-hmm. the whole um this whole episode is the the history of desire or the history of these characters desire yep um so i'm just wanting to see if i can start tying a bit of a thread uh, we'll, we'll presenting a bit of a thread for us to follow through the other characters as well, awesome. which is 
cool. Yes. <laughs> so this idea of it's the history of desire, it's the history of these characters' desire, but also, as you've really aptly pointed out, the, the multiplicity that exists in one person and the way perspectives shift. You can mm-hmm. have conflicting perspectives or you can have a growth of perspective, which I think we get to see in each of these characters' journeys. Um, because we've got Chris saying that she, you know, she, she doesn't care what, I don't care what you think of me, Dick. I don't, I, I don't care if you want me. In fact, it's mm-hmm. better that you don't. Mm-hmm. It's enough that I want you. Mm-hmm. So we're at like this is she's talking about where she's at in the journey. I think of this this TV series of this episode, this reigniting of desire, and the desire, as we've pointed out before, actually has fuck all to do with Dick mm-hmm. and everything to do with herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about getting in touch with this desire that she has sort of she's outlined that this this desire was unfulfilled until she met um, Sylvia. And then it disappeared again. And it was the desire for herself to have control over her desire rather than it having to be facilitated constantly through someone else. Mm, uh-huh. like, like having to uh-huh. ask, you know, ask for like, what do you think is sexy about me? Or um, like getting to fulfill desire through Sylvia. Um, but, but one thing I wondered, because I mm. don't exist in the American system and this is a very American show, like all of the filmmakers are American, the characters, it's all set in America. Um, <clears throat> there is this very tiny little snippet, like a tiny little juxtaposition or like a binary, sorry, of desire and care. Because it's almost like Chris stops, her, her sort of desire gets dissipated, albeit very slowly, through mm-hmm. Sylvia's care. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that has a, that has like the health care in the States creates mm. this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I yeah found <laughs> so fascinating totally yeah <laughs> that's a great call no it's exactly right like the we've talked about it a lot the the um economic context is not being stripped out of this and mm-hmm. that is a huge piece i mean because yeah. because they they get married so that she can have health care for her crohn's disease Basically, you yeah, you you have no right to healthcare in this country. Um, it, healthcare is almost entirely determined by your job. So, your whatever job you have, that's the healthcare plan that you get dealt. If you lose your job, you don't have healthcare anymore, and so it's like a huge mechanism for controlling labor, the labor force, um, which I think wild. is. is is the big reason why it hasn't changed despite i think the i think the recent polls are 85% of democrats want universal health care and 70% of the entire us population wants universal health care mm-hmm. so this you know it it shows you the gap between uh, this not really being a democracy um mm-hmm. but yeah no hugely influential and and yeah it's it's it's, it's exactly right like determines marriages often like (laughs) I I was I was thinking like the way that I um I kind of intersect with that with that story like in my own life is um not through the healthcare system but definitely through like economic poverty Mm -hmm. through the creative industries and the way Mm -hmm. that the gig economy is set up and having to stay 
in a marriage because it became like economically security to mm-hmm. extract myself from it. Yeah. So Chris gets yeah. into it for that reason, um, yeah. which, which I think, I think is interesting because she had, she, she speaks of this dynamic of spending a year just turning up to Sylvia's place to have sex on her own terms and then she says, I loved seeing myself through his eyes, mm-hmm. which is an eye, which, you know, he, he sees her as intelligent. He has mm-hmm. intelligent conversations with her. Mm-hmm. Um, He's not afraid of anything. No, no. And she yep. quite cynically says that, you know, perhaps it was because the circumstances at the time were that he was supposed to be famous or becoming famous because he'd published a book. So there was, you know, they were both feeling like a, in quite, kind of quite a high point, mm-hmm. like with a lot of power, like individual power. Um, yeah. And, oh, there was a point that I wanted to make there that, um, ah, yes. But we, we get to see this play that Sylvia makes. Like, we, we've already seen it. We've seen it when he goes for Toby. And Toby tells him, you're awful. Mm. So there is a, mm, there is a slight nice. mirroring there. Yeah, well, we get to see possibly mm. what Chris experienced through how Toby experienced Sylvia. Um, so I just, I, I, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a complexity mm-hmm. and a nuance there that um, we've already mm-hmm. been invited to see by the awesome. filmmakers. <laughs> Love that. That's so good. Yes. Because... Yes, that's that's so nice. I mean, as as Chris is reima- reimagining it or revisiting this and reexamining it, like that, you know, the scene, the scene of them eating clam soup, talking, like mm-hmm. again, like there's I, I there's so much intimacy and affection there, and yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting, uh, you know, to to put that contrast that you just laid out because. Some of these, some of the nastiness can be so deeply embedded that it's really hard to find out where it is and and discover like how it, how um, how deeply the the embodied or you know misogyny or the rules like that stuff can be so deep inside of you um, and. Toby's Toby's such a perfect um, mirror for all these things because, I mean, we'll get to her her mm-hmm. little vignette, but my God, it's <laughs> <laughs> she's a foil. She's a foil yeah. for um, Chris's internalized misogyny. Yeah, it's a way of. I think that Toby is a way. She's becoming more rounded in her own right now because we finally we've got a backstory for her. Yes, but um. But in her, in her, but Toby has been a very good mirror for Chris in a lot of ways through, and a, and a revealer of um, of Sylvia. Um, and I notice again that we haven't talked about Dick very much in this, but we will get to that because I've got some questions for us about how Dick functions in all of this. Nice. <laughs> we will get there. Um, how do you feel about moving on to Devon? Good. I just want to say too uh, the there's a piece of the gaze stuff that I really picked up in here in this transition between Chris mm. and Devin, where she's walking nice. down the street and all the, she's getting these really quick cuts of the women's faces as she's walking by and, and then 
the next thing is like, I wonder what, you know, if we all wrote you letters and it's, I, I don't know. I've really liked that transition from her, like deeply examining herself to then these looks, these like penetrating looks in, in these, as these quick glances of people walk by of these other women walking mm. by, like, I don't know what the right words are for this, but there's something that's like penetrating this facade of something that, yeah, I don't know. Do you think it's a know it's a knowingness? Yeah. Um, because yeah. I wondered that, um, there was a knowingness of, do you experience what I experience? Do you mm -hmm. see me as I see me? Do you see yourself as I see you? I wonder if it's totally, a... totally. And even maybe like, I don't know what you see, but I know that you're seeing has had to deal with the same rules that I've just kind of come to terms with. And I'm curious how everyone else has come to terms with these things. I wonder if this is a really, um, this is like a, it's like a Shakespearean device of you have the narrator come out at the beginning of a play and tell mm -hmm. you what is about to happen in the play. Mm -hmm. So it's a, so it's almost like a dear reader moment. Dear reader, I want you to, um, these women are you. I want you to see yourself as I, and I, and I see you and do you see me? I wonder if it's that kind of moment of setting up. It certainly worked that way for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. that's super, super interesting. Um, I just think that there's something about like, obviously Soloway directed this, but the, there's, there's a, a writing room as well that writes all of these episodes. Um, and I just find, I would love to know more about the process of writing for different, the different directors or whether the different directors were chosen because of the episodes. I just, mm -hmm. it just, it's such a, Mm -hmm. it's easy to forget about the, you know, the, um, the village of people that are required to make this story. Totally. Um, and I, I really noticed the, the writing in this one being like incredibly dense. Like they, they, they do so much with so little in this episode. It's like poetry level density of meanings packed into this, like mm -hmm. and phenomenal. And set, de set design that supports it. Like there's just a a really interesting styling of the set as you move through it. Every every set feels like it feels feels like a theater piece. Feels like a theater piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the set, the the, um, the the short films, like the the we haven't even talked about this um, glowing erased. I would like to talk about that towards. Well, after Great. we've done Let's our four, is that all Let's right? Because of course, <laughs> I feel I've got like I feel like it's very much tied up with how I'd like to pre present to you framing Dick. Oh, so. I'm so <laughs> great. Yes, yes. <laughs> but you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the music too. I, um, I I mean I love the music in all the episodes, but um, the music really got mm -hmm. me on this one too. So yeah. Okay, let's move on to Devin. Okay. Um, I, I, f I would like to be really transparent here about Devon. I've really struggled with how to name how Devon functions gender wise right. in the episode. Yeah. Like I'm never sure if I'm misgendering Devon. There's never in any indication of, um, like 
how to how to frame Devon as a, a gender wise and sexuality wise, and I I think I've come to the realization that that is that is the point, and actually I need to have a little look at my discomfort with that because the show's not the show's not interested in whether I it doesn't the show doesn't really care about whether I can name it or not mm-hmm. name De- like how Devon fits Devon is. Um, is fluid, uh, but it becomes clear within to me within this episode, uh, this vignette, um, that that through Devon we're getting to see what it's like to want the power that masculinity brings, and that has helped me make a lot more sense of Devon's character. That it has a lot more to do with she, she, they uh, are tied a lot more into Chris around this idea of wanting to be successful and wanting the power that the default white masculinity kind of cisgendered um, character can give to you if you've got if you're part of the right demographic essentially is what I'm trying to say mm-hmm. um, so I've, I found this vignette like revealing of myself as well as giving me like a deeper understanding of, of how this character is functioning in, in the overall kind of scheme of things um, that's interesting I, I, I was having a similar um thought process just just thinking like as Devin's story was getting told in this one like oh like to me it's like pretty clear that Devin is against the default situation she's the default box she's been put in and that Mm -hmm. we probably you know they is probably a more uh, appropriate pronoun than she like she yeah Devin would clearly be like fuck you if you call her right yeah yeah Um, exactly exactly (laughs) and being like and and like having to wear that having to wear that being like all right I know that like there are plenty of points where Devin is saying fuck you cat it's like okay I'm gonna wrap my head around that yeah yeah and deal with that totally Um, which is which I you know I've, I've found really good um I found it absolutely like crucial crucial because I, I want to jump to the end of, of her of the, her I'm doing it again their vignette um where Devin says I came back to Texas to figure out who the hell I should become because it looks like Devin has spent their entire life trying to become default masculine uh-huh. And what does that mean to become something other than that? Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Yes. And how important, like, s- ro- Dick as a role model is uh-huh. for her in that process. And, like, getting the boots and, like, totally reminded me of that as a kid. Like, how desperate for role models I felt in terms of, like if there's something I see in a, in a, in a adult that matches something inside me, God damn, that's like a powerful attractant, right? Like, Oh, oh like yeah, fully yeah. focus on that, like absorb everything about that. And it becomes like a talisman, like a, exactly. like a, mm-hmm. like a, like a symbol, like somehow you, you know, you can absorb the power. This, the symbol becomes this, the object becomes like a, a transforming talisman. Totally. Um, also the the having the having to very that family Devon's family and Devon having to very consciously block out the fact that 
dick is on the land that they dick owns the land that they have lived on like the so the intersectionality of this plays out like like Devon's having to deal with um like the 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 gender aspect of things but also it intersects with class it intersects with race um and and also being the first person in their family to go to university that's a really big deal as well and can you know can have some pretty intense obstacles to overcome not only by you know getting into university and and living that life but actually getting your family to understand what it is that you're trying to do as well which we saw in a couple of episodes a couple of episodes beforehand with Devin's sister saying just get a real job what are you doing get a real job and how difficult that is when you don't have the family support Uh for this undertaking that no one else has ever tried Uh Uh yeah yeah that that part was um that history of the land and the families was so potent and um Mm -hmm. to me like also also captured like how deeply embedded the rules of engagement are in terms of we have to perform this certain type of gratitude when the reality is the situation is completely fucked but we don't have the option to, to, to even acknowledge that or talk about that. Um, Performativity is a really key word because mm-hmm. um, we see what is re- what, what kind of performing is required to have power in any given situation. So performing masculinity, performing ownership, um, performing, performing gender roles, performing what it means to be the the masculine yeah the masculine uh, part part of a partnership the feminine mm-hmm. part of the partnership mm-hmm. um, and and the hurt that Devon experiences when when they don't actually when they're trying to perform all of these things but um, but their partner hides it because Devon's never ever going to live up to that that cliched masculinity. Uh-huh. And they were just the most beautiful, intimate moments because you go from, which, uh. which doesn't appear in Chris's, you go from Devin explaining in a, in a memoir, confessional style way. We then go into the, the inside of how it feels to be Devin. Uh-huh. And the, the formal qualities of filming really support that. You know, the beautiful close-ups of skin and, um, uh-huh. you know, uh, fragments of bodies. I mean, we yes. do have we do have one one moment of that with Chris's vignette where um, she's just had sex for the first time with with a guy at college. Yep. But that is that is framed by the guy naming the different parts of her body that he thinks is beautiful, and that's being married up with the parts of the body that she's. We're seeing the parts of the body that she thinks he's missing out. Yeah, she's he's creating voids of yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Whereas that mm-hmm. doesn't happen in in Devon's the kind of emotional life of Devon. Sort of, I feel like there's an elevation of understanding that we're being invited into with this character. There is a hmm. there is an elevated understanding mm-hmm. of 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 intimacy and body that mm. doesn't exist for Chris and and in her experiences mm, interesting um, yeah so the I think the formal filmic qualities really support that um, also you get this these beautiful shots of um, um, is it Sharima 
um, playing the cello mm -hmm. and the cello yeah. becomes another body. It sort mm -hmm. of, it allows for like a different, a difference, a different kinds of bodies to be engaging rather than Chris's, uh, Chris and her partner at the time's labeling of what a body is. I'm definitely spitballing there. <laughs> no, that's great. I, I love that. And the, the, the contrast as well really stood out to me of, um, Devin in bed, those intimate shots, like the the cocoon of beauty in that little room mm -hmm. and contrasted with like the shitty restaurant out cinder block walls out, you know, kitsch painting paintings and like going up to this table and being like, what, what the fuck? <clears throat> Yeah, we're together. Why are you with this guy and why are yeah. you hiding us? But this, it's all this is done shit. through looks. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a... It, the, um, the, the actor who plays Devin is just incredible. It just has this incredible ability to, like, emote with their eyes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, I'm gonna leave my other comments about Devin for when we start sort of when we when we loop when it. we yeah when we loop it we'll, we'll loop it back in a little bit. Um, cool. Uh, do you fancy moving on to Paula, or is there? Yeah, there, sure. You, no, yeah? let's let's go to Paula. Yeah. <laughs> Got any initial thoughts on Paula's vignette? Oh, loved it. Yeah. My God. Um, Absolutely amazing. I think I think Paula's in a way was the most transformative of for her character in terms of like, Agreed. we didn't really know that much about her. And I didn't, it wasn't really like, I wasn't actively confused by her, but I think this really clarified so much. Um, it clarified a lot for me, but I also, it, it brought up a lot of questions as yeah, well. A yeah. lot of, I found her, um, I found this difficult, this vignette the most difficult to sort of, to try and figure out um but yeah no i'm, I'm interested in <laughs> i'm interested to hear from you <laughs> um i think this one this one spoke to me the most about so going back to this idea of like um truth building blocks and like um you know in the last episode episode we talked about like schizophrenia and like bifurcating your mind and um so i was thinking about the scene where she's so fascinated by her mom and then she sees mm -hmm. the tampon string and mm -hmm. it's like to, to me this is like the, the 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 great example of like how shame can like permeate everything and mm -hmm. It's like she, at that point in time, she like misses this off ramp of truth. So she's like, uh, she 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 doesn't have the words to. to I th I think they they handled like young people's processing of events extremely well in this episode and mm, like beautifully right. And so she does she can't have a conversation about this and work through this. 
ha- were she able to like were was the were the mom able to sort of identify what had happened and just talk through this, I think Paula's life could could be a completely different place from this one tiny tiny little thing. There was something very Amelie esque about this, mm. the French film Amelie, where there is mm-hmm. this 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 sort of montage of of young Amelie kind of having these experiences and her parents misunderstanding them and it's sending mm-hmm. Amelie's life off on this trajectory it reminded me very much of, mm. of that through the inability to communicate um, because through Paula's vignette there is this sort of theme of mm-hmm. actually once something gets named it shuts things down for her mm-hmm. um, so maybe at this point of, of mm-hmm. identifying this tampon string had there the it seems like it could have been a vector for opening up how naming is mm, important I, exactly yes I, i've just started reading um uh sarah ahmed's living a feminist life which is a wonderful book from 2012 which really focuses on um like uh black and brown and minority perspectives on feminism mm-hmm. and um right at the top of the book Right at the beginning of it, um, she talks about the importance of thinking about when did when was feminism named for you and who named it for you, like 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 framing those moments of when a word solidifies, like a con sorry a concept solidifies into a word, and the importance of who yeah who that who processes that with you or for you, um, and I I feel like there is this in Paula's vignette there is this like she's around all of the the you know the fe- the feminism of her of her youth with her mum being involved in all this activism is somehow like 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 somehow is sort of missed them like it's not that it's missed the mark but that she has these kind of competing conflicting views of the world because here she is upholding dick's like 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 dick's power which you know he he he's an exemplar of 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 power and she's trying to please him, even though she has these deep roots mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. In, in political activism and feminist activism. That I, I feel like mm-hmm. she's holding these two conflicting ideas because, because there is this beautiful use of, um, of, of, a, of, of, a, um, of, a, of a strategy that's used all throughout Chris Krauss's book, I Love Dick, and all through the TV series, which is this this crisscrossing over this flip flopping of reality and media, reality and character. Mm-hmm. So there's this beautiful moment where we we she's talking about this crush that she has on Michael J. Fox, mm-hmm. and how he she found like this political conservativeness that he sort of his character, not even the actor, but the character that he portrayed, like super sexy, mm-hmm. and that was kind of like a a little mini sexual awakening for her, mm-hmm. which is like completely counter to all the activism that's going on around her, trying to uh, like trying to bring down that like conservative political power, and she finds it sexy. It's this attra- like it's the attraction to I'm suggesting the power that 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 person holds, not necessarily the character or the person itself. So it's it's like quite, yeah. quite a nice. I agree with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so it's just another example of this internal conflict, and I'm wondering if it is, it's a, 
we've spoken a lot about like internal internalized misogyny mm-hmm. but i i'm i can't even think of the term for it but like this idea of like the internalized inverted power like you you can be attracted to power that actually doesn't serve you i, well, I don't i don't even i don't even have the language for this concept mm, I have mm-hmm, to say. Mm-hmm. yeah i think that makes sense to me um Mm. yeah i also wonder too like i've i've noticed this theme really in my family a lot it's like um the like swinging back and forth the intergenerational swinging back and forth of um kind of like philosophies almost where like Mm -hmm growing up in a a certain household that has certain values like the kids in that household like see the other side which is like oh well our household doesn't get to do this and you know like there's there's a real like uh, like like i relate to my grandparents in a way that like my my parents have kind of swung in opposition oh, to I my see. grandparents and then I've kind of swung in opposition to my parents like mm-hmm. back to where my grandparents were in a way um yeah yeah so there's definitely something and I and I know I've been guilty of this too where like my mom has done like all this work on terms of like talking certain things through and like creating this this you know value system of how she what she's trying to set us up to be in the world and then being like really kind of exposed to and fluent in that, and then something new that's just really stupid catches my eye, and I'm like, "Oh, what about this thing? I'll throw all that out and just go after this <laughs> thing," you know? Um, which which totally reminds me of like Paula's. Um, she's in, she's in this feminist movement. She's she's like complete. It's all encompassing and then this little, little conservative dude on tv catches her eye and it's like oh <laughs> what about this <laughs> i think um i think also there's um there are equivalents in terms of like art historical movements so uh, during mm-hmm. the modernist period art right. historical movements developed out of a denial of the one that came before them yes, so there's yes. that flip-flopping completely um, but also you have different waves of feminism. So like first, second, third, fourth, which I think plays out really interestingly through these vignettes as well. You get um, sort of Chris's second wave, um, sort of like there's, and, and interestingly enough, like the little films, the film clips of the, of the artist films that are threaded through the TV se- uh, series seem to sort of follow this a little bit too. Like, the clips that we have in in this episode are from like 19 the 1990s onward we don't have any of those early 1970s feminist videos here because we're not dealing with second wave feminism we've kind of got chris is starting to move out of second wave feminism and more into kind of third wave feminism which is more to do with identity politics rather than the second wave feminism has more to do with them um, like up like upholding um like like pushing the fe- like the feminist agenda of of about equality but for women whereas third wave feminism is more about what is a woman 
like it's about intersectionality who gets to be a woman um because feminism is if feminism is only for white middle class women then that's not feminism Mm -hmm. so there's uh, Mm -hmm. you know you can kind of see a little bit of a trajectory running through the vignettes as well as because because i would sort of argue Mm. that toby's vignette is more like fourth wave feminism okay what's so what's fourth wave so fourth wave feminism i'm not even actually um sure how to define it um so but because we're in it yeah yeah Uh because we're in it it's it seems it's very new it's very internet based um and it's 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 starting to like it needs to include things like trans rights queer rights um like masculinity studies that didn't that weren't necessarily being spoken about in third wave feminism which is very much you know to do with the intersection of um class and race and sexuality um but again i i feel like it's so complicated and that you've got these first second third fourth waves of feminism that they bleed into each other and you can have fourth wave feminist sort of concerns that are refuting third wave feminist concerns that get close to second wave feminist concerns and Mm -hmm. fold it back in again which is very much like you're talking about with skipping back over what your mom's saying and and relating to your grandparents but then updating your grandparents thought so it's like Mm -hmm, i mm -hmm. I think that there is a necessary sort of interplay Mm -hmm. between all these waves Mm -hmm. of feminism Mm -hmm. and it is so nuanced and i'm not an expert that i there's so many things that i get wrong about this but i i think that i what i really enjoy is figuring this out through thinking through the media and the way that we are thinking Mm. through it and also thinking through our practice and my own practice um like for like for example um the hmm, no let's 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 talk about this when we get into the more about the films because cool. i'm going to take us completely off track that's okay yeah <laughs> all right so we're in paula yeah mm, um mm-hmm. did you catch the book you know the book that she's reading when she's talking about this um she's she's Mm -hmm. she associates touching herself with reading there's like it Mm -hmm. seems like there's a comfort Mm -hmm. and a pleasurable aspect to this you know this experience for her did you catch the book that fell from her hand when she's talking about um edward uh, eager so i i was like okay what is this i don't know this author it's obviously a must be a beloved childhood author and i don't know anything about his books and what is that book and the book that they chose is called half magic and it's so fascinating like the the plot of this book is that these kids find this magic talisman um and there's kind of like a comedic plot line where they're it grants wishes but the wishes keep going wrong Mm -hmm. and it's because the it's because the talisman only grants half of whatever you wish for and so the kids need to figure out that they've got to double down and double their wishes if they want to get what they want, which feels like this kind of like incredible parable for dealing with the different societal oppressions. You've got to work twice fucking hard mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. to get what you want, um, which I thought was just a, a Great. interesting yeah, thing. That's awesome. <laughs> that's such a good little uh, discovery of nugget. Yeah. Yeah. Um... 
I'm wondering what, how that relates, if you have any thoughts about how that relates to her touching. Yeah, I, I found, I found Paula's, as I said, the most difficult vignette to sort of unpick. Yeah. Um, I think, I also think that that has more to do with this is the most that we've ever seen of her because she has come across as an administrator for Dick. And yes. very much about the job, which is sort of reiterated in the, towards the end of the vignette. I could not stop laughing. I lost my shit when um, she's describing Dick's work. She never uses the word phallic. And like there's just these big, as Toby, I was so grateful that Toby straight away when we enter her, her vignette, straight off the back of Paula, talking about the, the sublime nature of these unnameable art objects that dick creates and and toby like names them outright as like these big solid concrete steel like versions of dick's penis yeah like i just because i could i could not stop laughing i found it the funniest thing ever because it literally these sculptures look like torsos with erections yeah but they're all just straight lines and like giant big monolithic like cocks <laughs> everywhere it's so totally. it's so funny but I found it really sort of heartbreaking. Right. But yes. also also lines up very lines up very nicely with the um with the half magic wishes mm, of the book. It does, doesn't it? Yep. You, you know how she's she's um presenting all these ideas for exhibitions to Dick, right? And so she's got what she wanted, which was this job with this incredible man, but she's only half got what she wanted. Because she's not getting to do, she's he's not taking any of her ideas, so she's just sitting. She's just existing as an administrator for this uh, this power structure. She so interesting. She's she's got she's so earnest in a way, mm, like mm -hmm. like given everything that she's been exposed to, how is she sort of on the fourth? time proposing a feminist exhibition still like is he gonna say yes you know <laughs> yeah yeah i and and i think that's the, the the difficulty i think that she is despite despite chris being so conflicted we are seeing chris grapple with the conflict yep whereas i think that paula is equally as conflicted as chris but hasn't got there mm, in terms agreed. of grappling with the, the conflict that she's living. Um, agreed. So it was very, dif it was very difficult to sort of, um, she has, yeah, she has a very, up until this episode, she's had a very, um, armored kind of presence. Mm -hmm. And then when she starts talking about Michael J. Fox, it's like, whoa, there's so much like warmth and, um, expressiveness and like um gentleness here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then yeah i think you're right i think it is unexamined for her because she hasn't really reconciled those worlds um and she she hasn't done what chris does in this episode which is like bring herself back into these situations and really start taking a critical look at what's happened and um yeah because we don't we don't really see paula the adult in exactly in her settings in, yep. in the vignette whereas we definitely see devon within 
within their settings watching their child self we definitely see yes. Toby back in their um, in their PhD settings, yes. like as an older self, and we in, definitely in see Chris. Yes. yes. So you're right. Paula yes. doesn't ex- necessarily exist in the same way within her memories, does she? Mm-mm. I'm gonna have to go back and, and rewatch Paula. I think because I think that there's a lot more to unpick there through yeah. through a third or fourth viewing. You know? Totally. Yeah. Because of course I'm still watching things like twice over, with um with a little bit of Marilyn Freeman's contemplative practice, Cinema Divina, um, which is still working for me really well, I have to say. Um, is there, is there anything else you want to say about Paula or should we jump over to Toby? Let's jump to Toby. Okay. So again, I, I just want to reiterate how glad I was that we went straight from we went straight from Dick's sculptures and, and, and Paula talking about how amazing they were to like Toby calling it how it is. They're just big giant concrete dicks. Um and Does she say something like, you know, they're they they call out the um preciousness of resources in mm-hmm. our world which is great i love that she like sort of sets that up as like uh this moral undertone for the work and then says well actually really it's just even if it is true that this that it's calling the light the preciousness of these materials what he's saying is they should be used for cocks as opposed to anything else like <laughs> Which I actually really like because it plays out what we find out later on in her vignette that um, that she has digested all of this art speak about his work because of the coffee book table that her is in her family home. So she's able to take what she's digested as a child and um, and now can process it through her own lens, which is interestingly a feminist mm-hmm. lens, but she does not want her work to only be seen within the lens of gender and sexuality and women's quote women's unquote studies um which which interestingly to call back to is what Paula does in the first episode I think it was mm-hmm. the first episode when she's like actually it's more formalist than feminist like yeah. it's interesting seeing that now um yeah I, I I just wanted to interject something here because it just occurred to me that like as you're saying, talking about Toby digesting, like I go back to Donna Haraway again, and you know we talked about um, when the book I Love Dick came out, and and sort of what language was available at the time to sort of mm-hmm. process it. And I'm thinking of Donna Haraway as like these these chunks of of new words that she's inventing are like digesting experiences from these large things that it's like the um surface area to volume ratio like as your digestion works like you choose stuff you like each process is to break it down into smaller more available pieces and Mm -hmm. toby totally has she's her her original sort of nourishment is in much more digestible pieces already than somebody like chris who is working with giant fucking chunks of like completely undigested experience. 
yeah, yeah. I also wonder if some of that has to do with age as well. Um, I don't know if you find this, but I find that the older I get, the more experiences that I have to try and filter through. I have to try and wade my way through these filters, these lenses that I have acquired mm-hmm. and trying to shift those lenses out of the way to see something for what it is without being, you know, without being distorted by my various experiences can be really, really difficult. So, sure. but sure. then that is to, that is to undermine, you know, that is to undermine Toby in some ways, because I don't think her age has anything necessarily to do with her perspective, as you say. It has maybe more to do with the era that she has like entered into, um, been born into, and is therefore, you know, and is therefore influenced by, I suppose. Um, I something that I really enjoyed about this this Toby section of the episode is that um, it very quickly and elegantly covers the background of the like male female imbalance in art history. Mm-hmm. And it does it visually. It does it very, very, very elegantly. Um, and it made me think a little bit about the how to talk about the knowledge that I have gained through my education and, and life um, that is now so integrated within me that I don't, I don't even know what other people don't know about art history and art and practices. So I, I actually realized that there was so much value in, in Toby's section covering that background of, of how the inequalities of the male-female dynamic play out in art history. Um, because to this, me, that's this, really fucking obvious, but not everyone will know that. <laughs> t- completely, yeah. It mm. re- reminded me of Hannah Gadsby in, this, in that section. Like, mm-hmm. um, Very much so. Yeah. Um, Oh man, too much, too many things happening at once in my brain. Um, I lost it. Um, Do you want me to jump on in? Please do. Okay. So I thought it was a really, I thought it was really, really interesting in terms of a very, very, in some ways it sort of, explained what we already knew about Toby. Um, it sort of just reiterated what we already knew about Toby. Um, and I felt like that wasn't necessarily done for, um, for character growth or anything like that. Like we, like, like we haven't necessarily, there's not like a huge journey there for, for Toby. What it's done is it ex- has further explained in my mind why she does the work that she does. And it's also a message from the filmmakers to us, which is um, that things that are about women and about gender don't have to only be wedged into this box of gender studies or something for women. Actually, it's just another part of life, part of academia, part of the art world um, that doesn't need to be, shouldn't be gendered. It should just be fucking normal. Um and this is sort of exemplified by, um, like, t- like Toby saying, like, why are you, um, 
like, like her professor says to her, maybe you should move over into gender studies. And she's like, I'm an art historian. That? Yeah, I'm an art historian. I'm, I'm not interested in gender studies. Why would you ask me that? It's a, um, to her, it is absolutely, absolutely clear that her work is as valid in art history Yes. Um, and is part, like is significant for art history and should not just be relegated to gender studies where only people interested in gender studies will look. She yes. wants her work to be to be big, to be great, to be important. And she's saying to Dick, you fucking watch out because I'm coming for you. In the past three years, I've gotten two postgraduate fellowships, an outstanding dissertation award and a Guggenheim. I may be nowhere near you, but I am definitely getting closer. Dear Dick, when I first read about you, I was confused. Who was this rich, famous person who got to make whatever he wanted in the desert? Did he not know how much I had suffered? What I mean to say is, we should be able to study beauty too. We shouldn't have to be gender studies majors. You've got 30 years on me, Dick, but you haven't made a piece in nearly a decade. Your time is running out. Dear Dick, we are not far from your doorstep. I'm coming for your position. Get out of my fucking way. Um, and I just, I loved that so much. Oh, it felt gosh. very powerful. How good is that? <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mm -hmm. mean. And she ditched her PhD clothes. When she's looking back at herself, she's sitting in that lecture theater and she's wearing her little baby doll dresses, looking like, you know, looking like a, a female fairy. Um, She's not performing academia to try and fit in to academia. She's being herself, um, performing femininity and at the same time as saying, I'm not interested in the politics of what I'm working on. I'm interested in the formal qualities, which is the area that all you big boys play in. So fuck you, I'm here too. Um, which yeah, which I which I really enjoyed, and also I guess that's one of the things that is um, potentially sits within that fourth wa fourth wave feminism, is that denial of identity politics, of the politics, the of gender politics, of actually wanting to move beyond the concerns of um, like second and third wave feminism, about like needing to push forward different mm -hmm. groups of people, and it is about sort of mm -hmm. dissolving. Mm -hmm. these groups mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that everyone right, right. And, and and the importance right. of the, the importance of having these different groups is that these pe people are still being marginalized so it's important to recognize that but 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 toby's moved on from that she's like i just don't i don't fucking care i just want completely yeah right 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 like like the idea that um your revolution has is now has its own rule book of things that people need to conform to and like how about we just stop making these rule books for a little bit um yeah so i thought a lot about toby's experience when her cousin comes and plays her that bit of pornography yes and definitely in contrast to chris here where like Toby is exuding, we've noticed this from the beginning, exuding such a self-assuredness and unflappable kind of confidence that um, informs how she navigates through all this stuff. It's, it's like a really um, 
powerful, confident, um, unflappable kind of presence that she has. And when we talked about Chris and sort of sniffing out the no, like using her nose to kind of sniff out the path to follow, I feel like Toby has been on her scent for so long that, you know, we get to see, like that to me is the start of it where, and I think pornography is like a very um, potent place to start sniffing around because so I listened to this podcast series by John Ronson called The Butterfly Effect in which he really, he's like a extremely like empathetic interviewer and he delves into like the porn industry and paints this really incredible portrait of these people's lives. It's through the lens of what digital, um, digitization has done to the porn industry and how basically it stripped all the money out to these concentrated, uh, you know, internet moguls. But in examining this, he really presents these, these super potent contrasts of like, here are the figures, here are how many people watch this stuff. And here's what people watch. Like this, these are like objective data revelations. And then here is how, as a society, we treat these pornographic performers. And he's going into their lives and like, you know, they can't, they can't get bank loans for mortgages. They can't, you know, they, they get recognized by the bank loan manager because he's seen their performance and yet is also so confronted by the the um, fact that this is a person in reality right next to them. And that's calling into question all these shameful things about desire and what we're, what's taboo and what we're allowed to talk about. And these actresses really bear the brunt of our society-wide inability to kind of deal with our own shame, deal with taboos, talk about stuff, bring stuff out into the open. And so what I'm getting at with Toby is that she's found this cache of like, this is the most pervasive thing in the fucking world and nobody talks about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Let's get started. But she refuses to engage with the politics of it. Yes, yes. So it's so so fascinating because she keeps bringing this... um, this kind of essentially like a, a, a pressure cooker yeah. back into a field yes. that, that, that's only about formalism. That's Brilliant. About, and, and keeps putting it in their face. Yes. Putting it in their face, speaking to power, like th- through this incredible subversion of what you're, what you're talking about, this like inability to deal with this huge cachet of like undealt with shame. Yes. Um, by refusing to engage with the shame, it's it's about everyone else's shame. Completely, and I'm real, and I, as I'm seeing this all, like, not to like discredit her artwork, but I'm like, it's it's actually adding a layer. I'm like the 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 layer of artwork that I'm like most fascinated by is watching the people watch her artwork. You know, like yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is which is a, which is essentially these layers of viewers throughout this episode. Yep. Of characters watching themselves us watching the characters characters watching us watching ourselves um us watching characters watch the characters watch the watch the other characters it's just this um incredible kind of layer cake 
which I think um which I think is again a testament to sort of the writers and Joey Soloway enacting the female gaze as a formalistic style so that we can we we can't help but reflect on these things even in like a casual viewing even in like one viewing without thinking about it too much um uh-huh. you, we are so um we are so adept at the language of watching <clears throat> and of understanding how editing works it's a we you know so many of us have been brought up in front of a television not everyone but yeah. so many of us yeah that that we we understand the nuances of of this um and on in subconscious embodied ways so i yeah i just think that i thought this was a master class in, in filmmaking <laughs> absolutely yep um i <sighs> I think it would be really great to maybe start pulling in or tying in some of the the um, the visual artist films in relation great. to what you've been saying, and to start tying this into desire cool. and this this history of desire. Because yeah. as you've outlined, desire is desire doesn't exist without shame, like in in many cultures. In, my, in I would hazard to say most cultures. Yeah. Um, so what we're looking at here is not only as I identified beforehand, um, the different, the, and as you pointed out, the multiple layers of perspective within each character. And as I pointed out, the journey of those perspectives, but we've also got mm-hmm. the journey of desire, the desire to shame and shame to desire and, and how those things are transformative. Um, and I think that there's a lot that, that the films that were chosen, they were chosen to go in front of each vignette uh-huh. and I think that they were chosen purposefully because as you know Amazon Prime has got these little trivia sections uh-huh. um, so there was this tiny little snippet saying that that the writers actually sat down for about three, three or four days and just watched a whole shit ton of artists moving image and then chose these vignettes very you know quite carefully um, so you've got it comes um, through there are like yeah they're abs- they're absolutely brilliant and i just essential sort of want- to the story yeah mm-hmm. absolutely essential and and i i think as you know as we sort of lightly touched on before there it's so fascinating that the formal some of the formal qualities and when i say formal i'm talking about like the filmmaking techniques yep. of these 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 excerpts have been pulled into the vignette with like the little the little white scratching out translucencies over each character as we're sort of introduced to the pivotal moment of when they experience desire. Yeah. Um, so I want to see if we can do this, if we can frame the, the, we use the films as a vector to kind of look at these moments of desire and the journeys of desire in each vignette, but also how Dick stands in, um, for each character's desire. Hmm. Like Dick becomes like a mm-hmm. mirror or a, a guiding force or a, yep. or oppositional in relation to this desire. Um, and this happens at the moment of that, this blurring, which comes from the first film, um, which is by um, the first artist film, which is by Naomi Uman. And it's called Removal from 1999. And this is positioned right at the beginning in front of um, Chris Krauss. Uh, sorry, in front of Chris's vignette. Um, 
And so Naomi, my, Naomi Uman, I'm not sure if it's Uman or Uman, I'm going to say Uman, um, is an American and Mexican experimental filmmaker and visual artist. This film was from 1999. So it's kind of, the filmmaker, she's kind of a contemporary of Chris Krauss, the author, yep. the artist, which I thought was quite fascinating that we've got a contemporary here. Uh, like this, this is a celebrated film. Um, and what you see in the film is this, it's, a, it's actually a vintage West German piece of pornography. And Uman has gone in and used nail varnish remover to take out the female bodies, the naked female bodies, out of every single frame of mm -hmm. the celluloid and then put it back together. And you get this incredible, like, white, blurring, shifting, shimmering removal of the female body. The void becomes its own sort of form and moving yeah. character. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and it becomes like... It's almost like a like a powerful absence. It's like alive. That, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Mm -hmm. and, and and so that 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 absence becomes like the the Soloway and the filmmakers they 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 take that and they lift that formal quality and they then place it in the different vignettes yes. at these kind of quite pivotal moments, um, and this kind of set this sets up the framework for the whole episode which I, I thought was just absolutely wonderful. So then you've got in front of Devon, you've got um, another Naomi Uman clip from the same year. Um, and it's called, uh, it's Mexican and I think it's Leche. Um, and so it, 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 you've got all of these sort of clips of a, of a rural Mexican family on, um, I think it's 35 millimeter film, much like the, the film removal was. But um, so it examines the lives of a rural Mexican family Uman lived with the family for a year while she was making this, mm -hmm. and this the importance of her hand, like the hand making quality of this film, like really comes into play. So she's um, processed the film in buckets and dried it on the family's clothesline. Like she has these really like handmade technical kind of interventions with the fabric of film, mm. which I think is which I think is really really beautiful. Um, and what year of, was that from? Sorry, nineteen ninety nine. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and it kind of harkens back to like the, the 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 kind of raw durational sort of qualities of that nineteen seventies feminist video that we have seen, um, yep. and it's in opposition to like if you think about nineteen ninety nine, that was when the first Matrix film came out. That mm -hmm. like uber polished, um, fantastical style of filmmaking. Yeah. Um, so this is in direct opposition to that. Um, uh, so I, I sort of took from this, you know, it, it ties really nicely into sort of Devin's family life and this kind of, um, like Hispanic rural kind of family life, um, being at odds in some ways with like Dick's art making with Dick's like powerful kind of space within the art making world, um, in front of Paula's. Uh, vignette uh, we've got a piece called um, Chronicles of a Lying Spirit by Callie Gabron so this is from 1992 and it's by an artist called Colleen Smith and that's the artist that I went to see I went to see her work yesterday in Edinburgh just by chance are you shitting me yeah could you not um, <laughs> so Colleen Smith is a black American artist um, 
and the work that I went to see was called um, H-E-L-L-O uh, and so she had um, she had got musicians playing these incredible like giant mainly brass instruments like real bassy like saxophones uh, and things like that and they were using the five notes from Steven Spielberg's film Encounter Close Encounters um, and they were so so and and each player was situated in a different part of um like like areas that had been affected by hurricane katrina mm. playing this kind of these five notes and you got this sort of interwoven um sense of like the space that was affected by the cyclone by the hurricane the the people that were affected by it um but also the way that she filmed it was so interesting. It reminded me a lot of what's happening with in, inside the, the I Love Dick episodes. Because rather than like a voyeuristic camera that's still, where you don't notice the camera movements, the camera moves the whole time. So yes. you become completely aware of Colleen Smith within the film. It's like it, there is a lack of voyeurism. It's you, you, You're not being invited into making up narratives about these people they're being invited directly into the space with the performers with the director right. through the use of the camera sometimes you, you get the sense that it's on cars and cars are being used as dollies and it's all shuddery and jerky it's like a wonderful piece of filmmaking um and so that, so uh, I digress because we actually need to be talking about Chronicles of a Lying Spirit. So Chronicles of a Lying Spirit is really, <laughs> is amazing. It's an amazing piece that she did. I think she did this as a student, um, where she takes on a fabricated um, persona called Callie Gabron to talk about um, like the. It's about the implications of um, the mediations of Black history through film. And video and she's talking about how she she had to make her own film in order to be seen on TV mm -hmm. um, but actually this is played twice over when you see the whole film and it's got a male voice and Kelly Gabron which is actually Colleen Smith's voice um, and the two the two kind of weave together and, and sometimes you notice Gabron speaking about um, like how you know how she wants to be seen and then sometimes i think that you have kind of more of the this default voice that kind of covers hers so i feel like it's a really um it, you know it's a beautiful pairing for pauline's vignette mm -hmm. um, and it also talks about the black experience which is what pauline's sorry paula's vignette does as well um and then over toby's just before toby's you have um I don't even know how to read out this title. So it's by um, a, a visual artist called Petra Courtright, made in 2012. So the most probably the most recent piece of work we've seen throughout the whole of the I Love Dick series so far. And all of these words run into one. Enchanted forest strippers, uh, no polo, e easy, two girls, bracket one. And... Um, uh, so Petra Courtright, very much like the character of Toby, doesn't want her work to be condensed into a feminist category. Um, although she considers herself a feminist, she wants the work to be viewed away from, from gender studies and she's um, involved in what I think would be fourth wave feminism. So she identifies as like post-internet rather than internet art, which is a generation of artists 
after that first kind of group of artists were kind of using the internet as material. So she's taken, uh, she's lifted dancing girls from um, the virtual girl software that makes strippers available for download and she's kind of placed that in this sort of fantastical world, um, which I think marries up really, really well with Toby's vignette. So they've done this kind of wonderful job of introducing the concerns of each character through their choice of film that they've paired these vignettes up with. Um, Ooh, that was a long rant. <laughs> That's awesome, Kat. Nice, nice work on that. Yeah. Um, but I was wondering what you thought about these, these, um, these film clips um, embed. They absolutely embed the the vignettes and the the episode within the art world and the um, within the concerns of women within the art world and black women within the art, within the art world and Hispanic women within the art world and um, people from different classes and backgrounds and how they engage with not only their lives and their histories but the art world as well because we have threaded through this dick throughout each vignette and how he helps to mold and shape these different perspectives that these women are reflecting on throughout the vignettes. And I was wondering if we could talk about what Dick stands in for for each character in relation to sort of desire and these women's histories of desire. That um, sounds great. I just want, let me just go back to just the, the device of using these films to begin with, which I think yeah, yeah. Um, gives me a lot of pleasure to see what they're just, just what they're attempting. Um, mm -hmm. And I think also <sighs> expresses without saying it, this, this theme of we can go back, we can go back and look at stuff with a new lens and write a new story about it. Mm -hmm. And the characters are doing this. And I think using these films like pulling these things out of history where i would never have seen any of these films mm -hmm. and and pulling them into this and collaging these these different works of art together um i think just as a an artist show like is it is a great like exemplar of like possibility so I get really just excited to see like, oh fuck, this is, this is an amazing, amazingly thoughtful um, blurring of all these different artistic forms. So you mentioned like the writer room, like we've got this, this massive community collaborating and they're collaborating with people who are not, who are dead or who have made stuff 20 years ago and mm -hmm. I don't know. I just, that whole feeling I get from that is just really great. So I just wanted to, yeah. Oh, I'm totally with you. And it reminds me very much to go back to like the source material of the book, I Love Dick, that Chris Krauss very adeptly manages to like, not even manages, like, like solidly weaves through past and future yep. um, texts within yep. this book. 
Um, she has conversations with her past self, with her future self, with, with, with Dick, who is a version of herself and his future work, which is actually her future work. No, sorry, his past work, which is actually her future work. Right, right, right. So it's, mm-hmm. this is this, this idea of, of speaking to work, um, with, with this new lens, with this new understanding, um, there, there's a precedence in the source material, um, but also it's very much a I, I enjoy thinking about it through Lauren Fournier's sort of uh, work on auto theory mm-hmm. um, because she's done a very similar thing with a, like there's a work by Adrian Piper called I think it's spirit food or food for the spirit where um, Adrian Piper is um, has has been in order to digest and understand the work of the philosopher Kant um, she took herself out away from her life, meditated, uh, like did a lot of uh, yoga, fasted, and only read Kant for like weeks on end. And every time she felt that herself was dissolving from reading Kant's work mm-hmm. on the self, she would then get up and take a photograph of herself in a mirror to be reminded that she exists and mm. then would go back to digesting this theory through this practice. Um, and there wasn't a word for this practice. Auto theory didn't exist in the seventies when this was happening, but through Lauren Fournier going back and revisiting this work through the, um, through the lens of auto theory, this work has now become a very important piece of, uh, like for me personally of like understanding how to start, uh, how to start inverting the power dynamics of theory, like stop sort of seeing theorists at the top and punters like us at the bottom and how to actually like embody and live with theory and, and make it your own. And therefore, as I think Bell Hooks says, make it useful because it can be understood by everybody, available mm. to everybody. So it's I think that the, the revisiting of work is it's really important and really crucial to continuing these kinds of conversations, you know? Totally. Yeah. I'm really glad that you identified that. Fuck Thank yeah. You. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, and that's a great way to finish that too, in terms of like uh, it becoming useful and, um, uh, yeah, well, let's keep going. Let's keep going. With, let's keep going gotcha. with this. Yeah. All right, so that I feel like this could be quite a nice sort of concluding exercise, cool. which is just like recapping, like, do you see Dick as a as a stand-in in the way that I do for the various defaults that these characters are kind of having to deal with? So, so first and foremost, as an umbrella, he is the the white heteronormative cisgendered holder of power in society the conservative normal um and then when our different characters encounter him they come up against this in their own diverse intersectional kinds of ways this uh, this sort of oppression um so and, and this I, I i i thought that perhaps the the naomi uman blur the blurring the void yep. the active void could be quite a useful um, sort of moment because we've got to choose a moment in each of these vignettes. So let's choose that blur as the moment to sort of cool. to sort of interrogate. Great, right? Yep. 
Yep. So, what is each character's journey of desire from and to? Um, and and so, how does the kind of how does that blurring sort of support that? And where does how does Dick intersect with this? Dick is this heteronormative holder of power structure. So with um, and I wonder if we could start with Devon. Because Chris is a little Chris, I feel like we've talked about Chris quite a lot, but we can, you know, we can we can get in there with her. So 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 Devin, at, do you remember at what point Devin like the the the, the white patterning, the void? Comes I'm gonna over try to Devin? remember these. I think I do remember most of these. So what first I think is what's interesting is Devin now Devin narrator telling this is standing mm. there looking at us, and when Dick mm-hmm. enters, Dick from the past butts into Devin's shoulder as he walks yeah. past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't know if we want to say anything about that, but I just, that stood out to me. And then I think Devin's tra- energy f- field thing mm, happens mm-hmm. when Dick has his armor on this woman yeah. and then Devin replaces Dick with their armor on this woman. I think that you're right. I think that you're right. And Devin is saying, I want to be the hand not the waist. I want to yes. be the hand around the yes. waist. Yes. Um, and I, I sort of see that as like, like that, that's, that is, um, Devin wanting to be Dick, but to be not, not Dick, but to be in the position of Dick in the social positioning of Dick, there is that desire to be in that position. And it doesn't necessarily seem to be about like, sexual desire as it is about um like social like social standing social position it sort of starts to intersect Mm -hmm. with like class and gender and Mm um and um uh and race and i mean um, the way he gets to be in the world like yeah yeah he walks into that room the first time and she's like how does this guy get to be this way like yeah mm -hmm. yeah and what like why and how do i get to be in that position that to me feels like mm-hmm. the point of desire uh, is like young Devin recognizing that and then older Devin stepping into that. Um, and then I wonder if the transformation of, of Devin's desire from and to is realizing that that being in that position of power actually wasn't right for them. Like try, trying to try and trying mm-hmm. on the performativity mm-hmm. in the way that Dick does it doesn't work for them and i would posit it's very much like we've spoken about in the first episode because the game is not meant for devon yes the only people who win that game is who the game is set up for and the game is set up for fucking dick totally um and so we get that lovely moment at the end where devon is saying i came back to texas to figure out who the hell i should become because becoming Mm -hmm. dick was not the answer yep um yep yeah, well, uh, <laughs> anything that's, else to add? <laughs> no, that's that's great. I think that's exactly right. Um, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it's painful. It's really it's really painful because we've seen Chris try this in her own way to like play that game, um, and it's caused nothing but it's caused nothing but pain because then you've got to be as I think you know maybe I mean it wasn't very explicit in Devin's vignette but you've got to be that asshole. You've got to be that person who takes power from other people. Um, and what is required to do that is just, it's just perpetuating more harm, I guess. Um, so 
let's look at Paula again I found this one more difficult to sort of like intellectualize so do you I think that Paula's point where the kind of white mm-hmm. like Uman Uman-esque blur void happens is when she's reading and touching herself and getting pleasure from that and so I wondered if that was sort of like the moment that's the moment of like like sexual awakening or like creative awakening or um like com- like comfortableness but it was really tied up in the unnaming the not naming of it yeah I, totally and, and this was a really i i think this is why it's partly confusing is that it's a really interesting perspective like i i found as i was watching this like thinking oh shit like we've kind of been you and i maybe have kind of been like disparaging dick's artwork mm. through this series yeah, and yeah. now i see paula loving it yeah yeah and i think the idea of Paula shutting herself in a room being completely internal kind of speaks to this idea that we're talking about in terms of like with fellowships and this idea of the artist as like context free versus, Mm -hmm. you know, um, so I, I, I get the parallel there where like her, her most, um, her her moment of like self discovery happens in these circumstances which really mirror Dick's practice in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, I think that you're right. I think that you're right. And I I have been wondering if my like my inability to take Dick's practice seriously. Um Yeah. Kinda get it kinda gets in the way of understanding where Paula is at because she is talking about the sublime. Um it's yeah. like she she desires and i can only kind of locate it in um like a sense of like internal agency somehow like he has this agency to enact not naming something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like like the power to say you know fuck all this it's exactly what i want it to be and what i think it is and it doesn't have to have a label Mm -hmm. it is sublime for the very nature of i say it's it is i say it is so Mm -hmm. So and it's it's so much in contrast his you know i'm post idea i haven't read a book in 10 years is Mm -hmm. so in contrast to her mother's world of getting these communities together and just you know like which is so context-based and so like digesting of all these things that like, yeah, maybe that's just, you, I, I guess, I guess I'm the same. Like I can see now like how that is, a, th- there could be a level of appeal and um, in power in terms of like getting to know yourself by like removing everything else. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I also I also wonder if like we really need to take into consideration when thinking about where her desire is coming from and where it's going mm-hmm. to if it's transforming at all because I'm not sure if it's transforming. Like I wonder if she's still in this like this space of being completely convinced by Dick, um, where he mm-hmm. if we think about how the position that he what what he is a substitute for he is a substitute for like mainstream power. So her like desire to engage with that, to, 
like again that's why i think it's about somehow the desire is agency but it's it's yeah. also like hooked into it is sexy there is the, the her masturbating is that that moment where the uman blur is in the film like there is some connection right. there and yep. i i wonder if it's we need to leave it to be complicated mm, nice like like it is messy maybe this is something will that will reveal itself later on oh yeah <laughs> maybe not, maybe not but i agree with maybe you not. yeah i agree with you that it does feel like it wants to be left complicated mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. nice yeah um and and i mean if we fold into into that narrative calling smith Colleen Smith's work about like this fabricated self that takes power that shows that 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 creates a TV like a film so that 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 you can see yourself yes so you can see yourself being represented um I like there is this tension because Paula Paula is trying to I don't know why I keep calling her Pauline Paula keeps trying to um like present these uh feminist exhibitions to dick she keeps trying to have this agency but it's but it's only met like it's not even met halfway she's not getting these exhibitions through so that yeah there it's is getting this... worse he's like why are you not getting the message <laughs> yeah he's just leaving the room he's yeah. doing to paula what he did to chris which was just leave yeah to leave to to devalue so yeah i think this is a complicated one um cool yeah <laughs> Um, and then Toby, Toby's um, film in front of her is this, um, this, you know, this really savvy, savvy internet based sort of like a flash artwork, um, which is, which I think really ties in nicely to sort of Toby's, uh, Toby's own work being as it's depicted in the episode. But when we think about who who dick oh okay sorry at what point at what point yeah. is does the does the blur kind of the uman blur feature and i i think it's when toby first sees pornography i think so too yeah um and i wanted to hazard a guess to see what you think see if you think that that's because this is the it's supposed to be a sexual awakening but actually it's um it's toby's like life's work awakening yes as opposed to necessarily a sexual awakening. Um, and that potentially Dick stands in for who Toby wants not to be, but like surpass. Conquer, conquer. Conquer, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. like she said, I'm not far from your doorstep. We get the impression that she's like, I'm going to take your power. Like, I don't want to be you. I don't want to have your position. I want to sidestep that and I just want, I want my own power. Um, and that, and that we sort of, we don't even see that desire from two, that it's not necessarily a journey. It's like, she like popped out like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> she, she reminds me of that thing. We talked a little bit about with Chris during that first episode with the little, uh, women director montage where mm. where in that moment chris chris occupies toby's perspective which is like dude you don't actually know shit like mm. your stuff mm -hmm. is stale as fuck like yeah get out the way let somebody else who actually knows about this stuff have a voice now um 
Yeah. And, and I, so the other thing I was reading with these erasure blobs is the idea we talked about previously about contagious energy. Ooh, yeah. You know, and so Chris... Chris coming in and then Devin seeing this crazy lady and being like, oh, I'm going to write this play. And then that, you know, that play and then like grabbing the letter and reading that incantation and that breaking Dick's brick and like see watching that energy flow. I feel like we're we're doing a um, a tracing backwards of of energy flows to these moments um, and. I don't know. I, it was just such a, a lovely visualization of energy for me. And uh, yeah, I, I really like that. Um, I think that also it, it starts to, like you say, it, it weaves these stories together, like that there yeah. is a causality, um, which, you know, m- m- I guess mirrors like what feminism is, which is it's, it's collective like it's collective as opposed to you know the the myth of the individual genius mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it shows that these stories are intertwined that like dick is not the connector but everyone's opposition to dick to dick's the power that dick holds and how that power influences their lives i guess is the connector it's um the push the put the pushback which is which is like I mean it reminds me of um, I mean this is this is really potent imagery from nineteen eighty four but like the idea of like propaganda and a dictator like a dictator like um, <laughs> nice <laughs> but like because the dictator's face is everywhere and statue is everywhere everybody is connected by their opposition or acquiescence to that and Mm -hmm. i feel like we're getting this is the art world version of dictatorship where like we are seeing you you know like yeah Yeah, uh, that 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 is such a pedestal image for everyone that that scene where chris starts walking down the street and starts looking at other people's eyes is like oh okay you know like is that realization that, oh, we are all unified by having to deal with this. Um, nice, yeah. nicely done. That's a really nice connection. And if you think about the, the, the overall sort of purpose of this episode is it's the history of desire. It's the, like, what, like what motivates you, your relationship to power and sex and shame. And um, these are all, all connecting forces. Um, and a lot of, a lot, I mean, desire is used to um, control people as well. Like completely, massively. completely, exactly. Yes, mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, th- thanks for going there with me with all of my life. <laughs> yeah. No, and I'm glad, you've, I'm glad you've kind of left some of this open too because I think... Um, yeah, these are great structures to build up and 
we can leave them if they don't seem relevant, but they, they mm-hmm. seem to be, it seems to be worth building these things up because they continually pay off in subsequent episodes and add, add like um, support to a widening of understanding for this, this show. So I love it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I just, um, I'm, I'm excited again to see what the next episode is. I'm not quite as filled with dread. I was so filled with dread before watching this. I was convinced I was going to be like, oh God, it's just another pasting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess, I guess I've also been thinking about, you can't help but think about yourself in relation to this material. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah. And it's, it is very, it is very confronting. Um, it's really confronting, particularly like being right in this world, in the UK, New Zealand version of it, not necessarily the United States version of it. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I think in, for me, like, I really loved going back to kids' perspectives in this and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I felt like Chris just starts out straight away, like, dear Dick, I've been horny since I was six. And like the, um, our inability to discuss sexuality in children and desire in children and how like, what that is like emergency break taboo. Like we Mm -hmm. cannot go there at all, but but the consequence of that, of us not being able to go there, is that it puts the burden entirely on the kids to sort mm-hmm. this out. And I just loved that we got, we got to see this. Like, we got to see kids trying to sort that out and what the consequences of these moments are later in life and how they form us as adults. Um, yeah, I really, like, personally connected with that. And Yeah, I did too. I did too. I think, um, like in some ways that was harder for me to think about. So it's something that I'm probably going to take away and digest for like the next week or so. Yeah. Um, it definitely was a bit harder, but I think maybe I was able to focus that through maybe the sense of where the characters went, where it was taken by the filmmakers. Um, but you're right, these things never get spoken about, um, and children are often left alone, um, whether intentionally or not, to deal with these really difficult issues that taboos, taboos are placed on things left, right, and center, um, without there ever being like any, I don't know, I don't know what I'm trying to say, without there ever, without there ever being any safe containers to speak about these things. Yes. And I, I do love that this episode did it in a very irreverent, very funny, but very poignant way. Ah, oh, totally. Yeah. And you mentioned this earlier and I, I think it's, it's, it really rung true with me too, which is like, it's so helpful to have art. I don't know how to say this, but like, it's almost like this, this, giant concept of art is like sitting there with its like arm around my shoulder being like yeah we can do this we can digest this like 
this is something we can work through and like I don't know it's it's it fe- really cool <laughs> <laughs> I really like that because sometimes to me art with a capital A feels very uh like aggressive or complicated or I'm in conflict with it um art with a little a that mm-hmm. I live with and embody and make and mm-hmm. use to facilitate thinking and problem solving and discussions definitely feels like what you're describing but I actually think that you're right that art with a capital A can fulfill that function too I just need to change my perspective on it ever so slightly it's just mm. a small shift mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I think it's I think it's one worth making cool yeah <laughs> <laughs> Do you yeah. know what? I, th- I don't think I've got like anything left in the tank now. No, uh, totally. <laughs> Me either. I, I mean, just watching this one too, like I was like crying at each time I watched it and being like, wow, I just can't believe it's just still doing this to me. But like, yeah, it was intense in a good way. Sony and I call mm-hmm. that destroyed as opposed to destroyed. Like when we watch something that's like, Destroyed. Rips you up, but in a good way, it's destroyed, yeah. So this was totally destroyed. And um That is a great word. <laughs> yeah. I might have to like Please do, yeah. Commandeer that. Yeah, yeah. Destroyed. That destroyed me. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. Well thanks, Kat. This was super fun. <laughs> Thank you. Look forward to the next one. Yeah. Holy shit, you made it to the end. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to Thinking With. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be updated on the next season. A five-star rating and review will help get our stories out to more people. Thank you so much.